You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. All right, all right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Maniculum Podcast. I'm Zoe, a professional game developer, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University. And I can't wait to update that to PhD, by the way. I can't wait to update I mean, that. That's gonna be that's gonna be great. It's probably not gonna happen till December. Oh, but we're getting closer. I'm so excited. Yeah, the plan the plan was August, but due to like the way that various things intersect, I wasn't able to get financial assistance for the summer, so I literally can't afford to graduate. That's such bullshit. Well, it, I'd have to pay summer tuition in order to graduate, and I can't afford summer tuition. I hate the university system. Anyway, we're medievalists who teach you how to adapt medieval stories into TTRPGs. And you don't need a degree to listen to us. And we're free. So there we go. I mean, you can give us money, but you, like, you, you don't can. have to. It's totally voluntary. And we do have a Patreon. And it's transact. Well, I hate saying it's transactional. I like having like, you know. It's mutually beneficial. There we go. That's much better. We're hitting it off great today. Anyway, point is, you get cool content with the Patreon if you so choose to be a part of the Patreon. You get bonus episodes. You get a bunch of our TTRPG materials that we write up for you to use in your games, ready to use out of the box, so to speak. We also have bloopers, bonus reels, things like that. But if you just prefer to be a part of our community, please check out our Discord community. It's fantastic, also entirely free. We do not, like, gatekeep. We don't paywall that one. We want you here with us. We want you talking. We want to bring this community together. It's what we're about. So please do join our wonderful Discord. To find a link to that, you can check our show notes. You can also reach out to us directly at our Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Mastodon. Tumblr, Mastodon, all of the other things that we have. Google us, we're on the internet, come find us. We still have Facebook, but I don't use it much. Yeah, I think Facebook. But like, if you send us a out. message, we'll get it. We'll see it, we'll find it. We'll get pinged, is the point. So, come be a part of the community. We love it when you guys do, and chat with us, and all that good stuff. And, anyway, with that, we are cruising right along into our episode today. What are we talking about, Mac? Well, I thought it was about time that we came back to the Gesta Romanorum. It's uh, been a few months. It has. It has. So, for anyone who doesn't remember, Gesta Romanorum translates literally to Deeds of the Romans, I think. Yeah. My Latin's terrible. Yeah, the feats of the Romans, tales of the Romans. But what it actually is, it's kind of a collection of folklore and kind of like just a miscellany of information that the monks who wrote it down tried to turn into moral tales and occasionally it will mention romans just because it's not really roman whatsoever except for like where they're where they'll say something along the lines of like in a certain emperor's reign like that's it that's all they give you it's kind of like if the Brothers Grimm were medieval monks who really just wanted sermon material instead yeah. of, like, linguistic and folkloric information. Yeah, that's accurate. And also, for some reason, wanted to pass their work off as Roman history. Very strange. But, anyway, our little miscellany survives. Yes, apparently in multiple uh, versions, but I've only got this one. Anyway. 
probably going to be able to do a few different stories today. Are you ready to get started? I am so ready to get started. Hit me with it. Our first is tale number 83, entitled, Of the Timorous Guardianship of the Soul. Got it. All right. So timorous as in, like, fragile. Yeah, like shaky. Okay. Yeah. Also, we've got to figure out how to do, like, screen caps of Skype, because that face you made... (laughs) That's something we should do as our Patreon bonus is faces Zoe makes. Faces I make. Yeah, there we go. I'm sure that'll go over great. We should do like a live episode at some point. That would be fun. If you want that, let us know if you want to see our faces. Ooh, a live episode sounds nerve wracking because then I wouldn't be able to go back and fix it when we say something dumb. That's fair. Hopefully we won't say too many dumb things. Yeah, but if you want that, yeah, we can 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 do do it. Anyway, here is our story. When Trajan reigned. So we've got an actual Roman emperor. We do. Which is, it's it's hit or miss with these. It often tries to contextualize them in terms of, like, a particular emperor. But often it doesn't include a name. And sometimes when it does, it's clear they're just picking one at random. And or it's not the name of an actual Roman emperor. Yeah, it'll be Byzantine. Or it'll pick a, pick a real emperor. But then it'll talk about knights and ladies and things that are very much later medieval and not Roman. I think in a, at least one of these, it was, it was a holy Roman emperor, which is different. That's very different. That's much later. But okay. But anyway, when Trajan reigned... He took great pleasure in gardens. I see. Yes. Well-known gardener, Trajan. Trajan, yes. His herbs. Definitely didn't spend, like, as I recall, most of his reign on military campaigns. He liked to hang out in gardens. I mean, I figure after you're done with the military campaign, all you would want to do is hang out in a garden. That's true. Maybe, Maybe he collected flowers as he went around. You know, that's possible. he's off in Britain and he's like, you know what? I really like that rosebush. I'm going to go pillage that family's house, dig up their rosebush and bring it back with me. No, he might have done that. And, you know, maybe maybe he had a great garden back in Rome. Yeah. Like, we only hear about the giant d- he built. I mean, the Trajan's column. But he might have <laughs> also he might have also had a garden or technically commissioned surrounding the d- and when I say he built, obviously, I mean he made other people build it. Right. Yeah, but his name's on it. When you're, when you're rich enough, you can have your name on it. But anyway. So Trajan and his garden. Yes. Having constructed one of uncommon beauty and planted in it trees of every kind, he appointed a keeper with injunctions to defend it faithfully. But by and by, a wild boar broke into the garden, overturned the young trees, and rooted up the flowers. The keeper, whose name was Jonathan, good Roman name there, Jonathan. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Me, when I try and world build, I'm over here with all these fancy names and then I'm like, I didn't plan for this NPC. Jonathan it is. Jonathan's a Hebrew name originally. It is, yeah, yeah. All right, so that's not implausible, but like... Uh, It still feels weird. Yeah. Feels weird. Anyway... Oh, apparently Jonathan's a badass, because what he does is, perceiving this, he cut off the boar's left ear, and the animal with a loud noise departed. Departed this life? Or departed no, the I garden? No, I think it just turned around and left. Damn, alright. I mean, this does make sense, he pulled a Peter. Hey y'all, future Zoe here. So, in this episode, 
we talked about um, pulling a Peter. And this refers to in, gosh, I don't remember which book of the Bible this is. It's one of the Gospels. But Peter chops a guy's ear off. He chops off one of the Roman guards' ears because they dared try to arrest Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter's response to this is basically, you don't take my savior. And he chops the guy's ear off with his sword that he had, you know, on him. And Christ miracles it back on. But yeah, that's, that is essentially what I meant here is chop the guy's ear off. But I mean, I've, I've never encountered a wild boar. Mm-hmm. This, this does not accord with what I've been told of them. Yeah, usually they don't they don't really stop. Yeah, see what I've been told of wild boar is that the most important thing you have to know is that when you go boar hunting, there's a special spear for wild boar. I was going to bring this up. It has a crossbar yep. behind the blade because otherwise, if you spear a boar, it will just keep charging at you up the spear. And so you need a special thing to keep that from happening. Yes. This does not sound compatible with it ran away because he cut his ear. I mean, to be fair, I feel like with wild animals, not to bring too much realism into this, but wild animals don't really like people and they don't like getting hurt. So I feel like it's reasonable enough. Like if you make loud noises around a bear, it'll usually run away. The problem is when you get bears and moose and other wild animals that are too comfortable with people, and that's when they start getting aggressive. So maybe this poor wild boar was just way out of outside of his usual territory. Or hey, maybe they're only like that when they get cornered. Yeah. I am not an expert in swine behavior. But anyway, this yes. boar books it. Yes, but another day, the same boar re-entered the garden and committed great depredations. Okay. Upon which Jonathan cut off his right ear. I can already feel the moral coming in. Okay. But notwithstanding this, he entered a third time, and the keeper, on seeing this, cut off his tail, with which ignominious loss he departed, as formerly, making a tremendous uproar. Great word choice. This Jonathan is presumably very athletic to be able to, like, do this so precisely without, like, having to trap the boar in some way. Yeah. Yeah, I'm impressed. Like, he must be jumping around it somehow. Yeah. Or just, like, really quick. Very impressive. However, he appeared on a fourth occasion, breaking the rule of threes. Ooh, exciting. And committed the like injuries, which I think means dug up the garden some more. Yes. When Jonathan, more and more incensed, caught up a lance and transfixed him on the spot. All right, fair play to him. He was then sent to the royal kitchen and prepared for the king's table. Is either a writing error or a translation error, because the king is Trajan, but Trajan is not a king, he's an emperor. He's an emperor, that's right. Now Trajan, it seems, was especially partial to the heart of any animal. See, that's exactly the sort of face we need to show to our patrons. I don't, I don't think. All right, that's fair. <sighs> My brother really enjoys chicken heart, like it's a delicacy in China, and he loved it when he was over there. I don't like it personally, but to each their own. So Trajan really likes heart. And the cook, observing that the boar's heart was particularly fat and delicate, hearts should not be fat. That's an unhealthy boar. Yes, but really good for cooking. He reserved it for his own tooth. Oh. Interesting phrasing. When, therefore, the emperor's dinner was served up, the heart was inquired after, and the servants returned to the cook. 
I like the scene here that they bring up a whole boar to the table and Trajan's like, I want to eat its heart. Where's its heart? I feel like that's expected, though. He's probably used to eating hearts as it happens, you know. Tell my lord, said the cook, that it had no heart. And if he disbelieves it, say that I will adduce convincing reasons for the defect. Okay, we're just going with it. The servants delivered the cook's message, and the astonished emperor exclaimed, What do I hear? There is no animal without a heart. But since he offers to prove his assertion, we will hear him. I think there are some animals without hearts, but they probably didn't know that at the time. Yeah, and they're like deep sea fish or whatever. I don't think jellyfish have hearts. Oh, je- yeah, but you don't eat jellyfish. You can eat jellyfish. Really? Yeah, I've actually heard it pitched as a, a dish that is made of an animal, but could be technically considered vegan. Because they have no nervous system, so oh. there's no suffering involved, theoretically. I don't know how well that like philosophical argument plays out. But what an interesting argument. I feel like that's a good solution to a riddle. Yeah. I like that. What stings and swims, but like has no heart or something? I don't know. But yeah, they didn't really think about animals not having hearts. They probably wouldn't be classified as animals to medievals, really. Well, didn't Aristotle sort animals into animals with blood and animals without blood? So presumably that second category wouldn't have hearts. That sounds right. Yeah, so Trajan's getting his taxonomy wrong. Yes, that's the important part of this story. Anyway, but since he offers to prove his assertion, we will hear him. The cook was sent for and spoke thus. My lord, listen to me. All thought proceeds from the heart. Which is not true, but that was a theory at some time, so like, fine. It follows, therefore, that if there be no thought, there is no heart. (laughs) I see where this is going. The boar, in the first instance, entered the garden and committed much injury. I, and there's a footnote here saying that the writer has confused Jonathan the garden keeper with the cook. With the cook, yeah, I was, yep, good note. I, seeing it, cut off his left ear. Now, if he had possessed a heart, he would have recollected the loss of so important a member. But he did not, for he entered a second time. Therefore, he had no heart. Besides, if he had had a heart, when I had cut off his right ear, he would have meditated on the matter. Which he did not, for he came again and lost his tail. See, this is some Sidrak and Bacchus <laughs> Expand on that. Well, it's that kind of logic, right? Like in all those questions, you know, we're asking these philosophical questions. And the answers are so obfuscated. Like, they have a certain logic. It's not correct logic, but they have a certain logic. Yeah. That kind of goes with it. That's what this guy's doing. Moreover, having lost his ears and his tail, had he possessed even a particle of heart, he would have thought. But he did not think, for he entered a fourth time and was killed. For these several reasons, I am confident that he had no heart. The emperor, satisfied with what he heard, applauded the man's judgment, and thus he escaped. Good to know that leadership at every level throughout all time has always been this dumb. Yes. And I feel like the cook kind of knew that, because... Future Mac here. The audio cut out for a second, but what Past Mac was saying was that the cook could have passed off the lack of heart as a mistake, and just said... And even said something like, oh, I set it aside for you while I was butchering the boar, but then I just forgot to bring that plate up. Here it is. 
But instead, he chose to just boldfacedly say, this pig had no heart, and assume that Trajan was gullible enough to believe him. Oops, yeah, yeah. No biggie. But he was like, no, I can do this. I can, I can, I can I trick him into I thinking know what this, I can do this animal had no heart. Oh my gosh. So what, pray tell, is the moral of this story? Because what I see is a lying thief. Yes, well, my beloved, the emperor is Christ. That doesn't, that, we're not starting off well. It has to be. In all of these, whoever has the highest rank is either God or Jesus. So if there's a king, he's God or Jesus. One of the two. So we're tricking Jesus. Yes, we are trick. We're tricking Jesus. Okay. All right. To be fair, he has been tricked before. Elucidate me. Well, you know, I know that the, what's the word? The canon? Is that it was all on purpose, but Ah. I think he got caught in that garden by accident. That's a fun idea to play with. That's a very fun idea to play with. (laughs) Also, he doesn't know when figs are in season. So, you know, maybe he's ignorant about other things. Oh, yeah, that is true. Yeah, yeah. He's not omniscient, is my point. (laughs) But anyway, the emperor is Christ, who delights in fair gardens, which, again, same example, I think that would not be true. Yeah. I think he would have garden-related trauma. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're right. You're, You're dead on there. Oh, oh, but it clarifies then. In this case, by gardens, the author means religious men in whom our Lord has planted many virtues. Oh, great. Okay. (laughs) The keeper is a prelate. Okay. The boar is any worldly-minded man who sins and is punished for his transgressions. So the boar is, like, trampling all these spiritual men. Yes, and when someone transgresses against religious injunctions, the clergy cut off their ears. Right, right. I, I remember that one. Yes, yes, well known. Yes, Sunday school. And, and tail. And tail. The abscission, good word, of the left ear represents the decease of a beloved relation, the right of a son or daughter. Holy shit. And the tail of a wife. So, what? in this metaphor, is the prelate killing this man's family because of his sins? Is that what I'm I hearing? feel like that's the only way to read this. this. These morals are wild every single time. It's like, they reverse engineer these morals, and they're not even virtuous. The morals do not exist. They're just nonsense. Yeah. By the way, in case anyone's not clear, a prelate is a high-ranking member of the clergy. Yes. At last death, that is, Jonathan, transfixes the sinner himself. I feel like the writer has again forgotten that Jonathan and the Keeper are the same person. That makes sense. Because it started out by saying the Keeper is a prelate, and now Jonathan the Keeper is representing death. There is a Saint Jonathan. Is there? There's God. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure he's written down as Saint John. Wait, there's a... What's what's he called? Apostle? Yeah. He's Saint John. Well, there's, there's also the Old Testament, Jonathan, which is where I was going. But yeah, there is, there is John. Huh. Okay. All right. So we got the Keeper and Jonathan, who are the same person, but also two different figures in this analogy of doom. Yes. And finally, the heart here emblems the soul, which never would have transgressed had it retained its reason. That doesn't even make any sense because the heart actually existed. Yeah, it was really there. It was really there. <laughs> it, was, it was a lie. So what, is it like Christ won't recognize your soul? Yes, if, if the 
The prelate? The prelate is able to cut off your ears and convince Christ that you have no and soul. And kill your family? Yes. What is this metaphor? <laughs> like, if you read this through at all, it makes no sense. <laughs> what is going on? Ugh. To be fair, I'm like 99% sure that the interpretations we're getting are all heavily summarized. So I seem to remember that the first episode we did, like, a couple of them were much longer, and then there was a note that said something like, I'm not, not translating these whole things anymore. We're not doing anymore. all of these, yeah. So it might make more sense if we had all of it, or it might make That's less sense worst. if we had all of it. All right, all right. Would you like to hear another story? Yes, give me another story. All right, so this is Tale 85 of Prayer, which is as harmony before God. Makes sense, sort of. Weird use of the word harmony, but okay. Yeah, that was my thought yep. too. When Tiberius reigned. Another one. This yeah. is another real guy. He was passionately fond of music. That might actually be true. It happened that as he once pursued the chase, that's probably not true. I don't think Tiberius was a big hunter. Yeah, likely not. Didn't he spend like his entire reign on a rocky island in the middle of the Mediterranean? Like at his... It was like a retreat that he just never left. Yeah, in 26, let's see, he came to he came to the purple in the year 14. And in 26, he removed himself from Rome. He had his military campaigns, retirement to Rhodes. He went to Rhodes. Oh, there might be hunting on yeah. Rhodes. Oh, I was thinking of Capri. Oh, got it. Apparently it was a traditional holiday retreat. That makes sense. Could be hunting. All right, I'm not going to discount that. Yeah. Maybe he hunted. Maybe he hunted. Anyway. But anyway, while he was hunting, he was struck with the sound of a harp, whose sweetness so delighted him that he turned his horse's head and rode to the place from which it issued. When he arrived there, he perceived a broad sheet of water. Weird way to say a river. Or a lake or a some kind of body of water. I feel like <laughs> we should get a specification yeah. here of like what it is. Unless it's literally like a sheet. Like, it's just like just this like a, disconnected, yeah, like, floating plane, plane of, water. of water. See, this is when writers try and get, like, clever with their writing. It's like, no, sometimes you just need to leave it. Like, you, it's okay to say lake. Yeah. Like, is, is it a lake? Is it a river? It's yeah. A, is it a pond? Yeah. Stream? Fountain? We don't know. Is he on that island and he's just come to the edge and is looking at the ocean? We don't know. We don't know. Anyway, a broad sheet of water. Yes. And near it, a certain poor man seated on the ground, having a harp in his hand. From hence arose the melody. And the emperor was refreshed and exhilarated by the delicious tones the harp gave forth. I like that characterization. Delicious tones. Like you're, you're savoring a meal when you listen to music. That's nice. Yeah, that's good. My friend, said the king, inform me how it is that your harp sounds so sweetly. My lord, answered the other. For more than 30 years, I have sat by this stream. Okay, it's a stream. At least we know. Like, straight? Did, where do you get food? Do you sleep there? I think that one we can, like, give him a do little... Do in the stream? Oh, boy. Give him a little bit of grace. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is how I read things. I have to nitpick all the details. That's fair. That is how you get a, you know, a PhD. Anyway, for more than 30 years, I have sat by this stream... And God has bestowed upon me such grace that the moment I touch the chords of my harp, the very fishes, enchanted with the harmony, come even into my hand and afford sustenance to my wife and family. That's a cool spell. Yeah, that's neat. 
I like, I mean, like, that's 100% magic. Like, you're not just that good at music. And, like, if you are, like, specifically to the fishes, the fishes really like this music. But, unhappily for me... (laughs) Sorry, I I marked these years ago. Like, when we were first planning to do this podcast, I read through the Gesta Romanorum, and I tabbed all the stories that I wanted to come back to. So these are as much a surprise for me as they are for Zoe. And this, this next... This next bit just took me by surprise. But unhappily for me, a certain whistler has arrived within these few days from another country, and he whistles so admirably that the fishes that the fishes that the fishes forsake me and go over to him. No! <laughs> I didn't know you could have this type of conflict. <laughs> Not the whistling guy. Therefore, my lord, since you are powerful and the ruler of this kingdom, empire, give me some aid. (laughs) (laughs) We've totally lost him tonight. (laughs) Give me some aid against this abominable whistler. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That should be a monster. The abominable whistler. Yes, abominable whistler. Okay, carrying on. (laughs) My friend, returned the king, I can help you only in one thing, but I hope this will be enough. I have in You can help him in a lot of things. You're a king. You could just give him enough money that he can buy fish for the rest of his life. That's true. Actually, no, you're an emperor. The text just keeps calling you a king. What he's offering is, I have in my hunting bag a golden hook, which I will give you. Fasten it on the top of a rod, and then strike your harp. What? The sound will inveigle the fishes. Inveigle the fishes? (laughs) (laughs) Inveigle? (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard that word. Inveigle. Pretty sure I have, but it's, it's an obscure one. I don't actually remember what it means. Persuade by means of deception or flattery. Okay. So we're, we're, uh, inveigling the fishes. Yes, we're going to inveigle the fishes. We're going to deceive you. Yes. <laughs> Why do you have this with you? <laughs> None of this makes sense. Anyway, the sound will inveigle the fishes, and as soon as they approach, by means of the hook, draw them to land. If you follow my advice, the whistler will depart in great trouble. This doesn't... He's. This is just what he was already doing, but with extra steps. Yeah. Okay, so Tiberius comes a- across this guy, and he's like, How does your harping sound so amazing? And he's like, Well... I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that it's so good that it makes fishes jump out of the stream into my hand. However, the abominable whistler (laughs) now competes with me for the fishes. And Tiberius is like, oh, I just so happen to have a tool you can use to play your harp and also hook fishes. You should take this. Wild. So I guess none of this is new to him. Like, he was like, oh, of course, the old fishes with the harp. Yeah. I have something for There's that. There's just people in his empire who go around doing this, I guess. The, the fish trade yeah. has never been so good. They're going to overfish these streams. Yeah. All right. Anyway, the poor man did as he was directed. And before the fishes could arrive at the place where the whistler was stationed, the hook brought them to land. The whistler... Perceiving himself outdone, retired in much tribulation. Nonsensical, but all right. And there's a footnote. There is a fable of a fisherman piping to the fishes in the Latin Aesop, but the story is different. 
Good to know. It doesn't give any details, it just says it's different. All right. That's that's pretty cool, though. I feel like it, this is made much more entertaining by the fact the translator insists on saying fishes instead fish, of fish. Yes. Well, because it's multiple different kinds right. of fishes. It's not just one kind of fish. Like, I'm, I'm sure that is, like, technically correct. But I feel like most people, when you're talking about non-specific fish, they're you're just, just like, yeah, They're just gonna say fish. Yeah. Like, you're only going to say fishes if you are specifically talking about, like, multiple species. Yeah. If you just mean, like, the class in general. You're not gonna be that specific. Wild. Okay. Anyway, you want to hear the application? Yeah. How are we turning this into a Christian motif? Well, my beloved, the emperor, you want to guess? Christ. Is Christ. Oh, yes, Lord. of course. Yeah. The harmony which delights him is prayer. Okay. All right. This one makes a little more sense, I feel like. The water is the world. The fishes are sinners. Okay. I hope this is a discipleship metaphor and not a let's kill the sinners metaphor. The poor man is a preacher. Yeah. Who, as we yeah. know, trick and eat sinners. I mean, <laughs> depending on your megachurch. And the harp is the sacred writings. Okay, alright. So Christ is gonna give the preacher, like, a secret little extra device to bring more fish disciples into, you know, into the church. Right. So who's the- who's the- Or wis- out of the world, at oh, least. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Okay, so who's our, uh, our abominable whistler? The whistler is the devil. Ah, yes, of course. And the golden hook is divine grace. Ah, that one actually does track. It does make sense. I'll give him that one. With the exception of the fact that the preacher is inveigling eating. the sinners yeah, and then <laughs> killing and eating them. It's not a great metaphor, but at least it's cohesive. Yeah. At least it's comprehensible. I'll give him that one. It's still not great. Well, we definitely have time for more. So want to go to the next one? Yes. Also, I feel like we're missing out a great opportunity for the, for the devil not to be a fiddler. But to be an abominable whistler, you know, like Devil Went Down to Georgia with like the full fiddle thing. Yeah. Could It could have been a whistling competition. What would the prize be? Because the prize was the fiddle That's in that true. song. I don't know. Like, what do you say? Like, you can have my golden lips? That's a weird way to put that. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just like, I won't come around and take your soul, kiddo. Does the devil have to have a, a winning upside? Maybe he's just challenging this other whistling kid. Well, I feel like you have to get the other person to agree, and they're not going to agree if there's no upside. That's fair. That's fair. All right, I'm looking at the next one, and there's a note I left here, and I'm trying to decipher it. Okay, okay, I know what I'm talking about. All right, so I've made a note here that says, this is an adaptation of a story from the Republic, and... I wasn't sure what that meant at first. I was like, right. Plato? Right. But no, this is this is a story from the Roman Republic. It's like included in like Livy and stuff. Makes sense. Cool. I'm just throwing out Livy as a random name. This is this is a story I have heard in a recounting of the quote history unquote of, of the Roman Republic. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll recognize this one. All right. This is Tale 92. And it is entitled, Of Christ, Who Died That We Might Live. Yes, the, the famous Roman Republic tale. Yes, before Christ's Before Christ. Christ. <laughs> yes. Right, of course. How could I have forgotten this one? No, it's, uh, uh, what's that thing that's foreshadowing but for the Bible? Prophecy? 
typology. Oh. Although I like the answer prophecy also. Prophecy. <laughs> Future Mac here. I've realized that I didn't define this term for anyone who's not familiar. Typology, in the Christian theological use of the term, is basically the idea that events, people, and motifs in the Old Testament can be interpreted as foreshadowing for the New Testament. Obviously, there are a lot of problems with this idea, and it kind of doesn't make sense unless you're coming at it from a very specific perspective. Anyway, the story, it's a short one. It's only one paragraph. Oh, here we go. <laughs> a certain king had a wife named Cornelia. Okay, because first of all, Christ didn't have a wife. I was going to say, you're just assuming the king is Christ, but also the king is always Christ. The king is so always... We've, we've already established this. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, he has a wife named Cornelia. Cool. Good to know. I don't know. Maybe she represents the church. Probably. Let's see what happens to Cornelia. It happened that under a wall in one of the king's castles, two serpents were discovered. One male and one female. Adam and Eve. That's my guess. The king, hearing of this... Why? He just happened to know that there's serpents under his castle. Are we talking dragons or are we talking like garden snakes? Good question. The serpent encompasses both of those and only one of those I think I would tell the king about. Yeah. The king hearing of this interrogated his learned men as to the signification and they assured him that they were hidden there, the snakes, the serpents, to predict the death of a man or a woman. Okay, that's pretty damn cool, though. Oh? I don't know. I just like the idea that, you know, okay, I really like semiotics in a lot of different ways, which if you're unfamiliar with that word, it's basically like looking at meaning in different things. Like when you look at a poster, you're looking at a bunch of different archetypes or themes or looking at all of that stuff stacked up in a certain way that has meaning to you. And semiotics is kind of like the study of that, the study of signs, if you will. I really like this idea because it's something that you can see throughout a lot of different medieval stories. And even beyond that, it's one of those things that like Hero with a Thousand Faces does. A lot of Jungian psychology also does this. And so when you start getting into that stuff, it's really fun to deconstruct. And like, it's sort of how like, when you take apart dreams and blah, blah, blah. It's the same sort of thing. So this idea that there is a serpent in the garden or a serpent in the castle, like civilization has has been invaded, you know, by this serpent or something is an archetype, right? That you can find. We find that in the Garden of Eden. We find that in Beowulf, for instance, like Beowulf comes charging into the middle of Harrowt, the hall, the civilization. So he's kind of, he's invading. He's not already there. But I don't know. I really like that. We also see that funnily enough, and I don't know why they put that in this film in particular, but Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, The Legend of the Sword, has a serpent in the bottom of the castle that like grants Mordred more power. And so that comes through. And then if you reflect that back onto the Mabinogian, where they want to build the castle in Camelot or what will be Camelot, but there's like two snakes, two dragons wrestling underground. And so whenever they try and build a castle, it keeps falling down. And so you get like all of this, I don't know, 
I really like this motif. It's cool to see it in another way. And if it is Roman as well, I didn't know that. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I have this weird obsession with like finding finding these moments. So that's really cool to see. Also, I would love to know if Guy Ritchie knew about the Mad Wenogian in any way when he was developing that movie, or if he just thought like having a weird, creepy snake dude in the bottom of this castle would be cool. Because if he had no idea, how did that little like earworm and or snake, if you will, like come into his consciousness that he would happen to independently recreate the snakes and the tower and the castle for King Arthur in particular. I don't know. I just, I'm fascinated with this. So I'm interested to see it in a new way. I am of the opinion that if you find a snake, that is a good omen. It means that you get to see a snake. Snakes snakes are are cool. cool. (laughs) Snakes are awesome. Also, snakes that can prophesy death, doubly cool. That's true. That would make snakes way cooler if they prophesied death. So yeah, okay. The snakes are there, are hidden there, which implies the agency of some other power here who put snakes in his wall. Whatever. To predict the, the, court the death wizard. Of, a, <laughs> of a man or woman. Merlin's like, oh, the king doesn't like these snakes. I'm gonna stick them <laughs> in the wall in the, in the garden or whatever. They further declared that if the male serpent were killed, a man should die. If the female, a woman and a wife. I don't know why they said it like that. I guess she has to be married. Yeah, I guess like unmarried women are safe from the from the snake serpent curse. Yeah, the snake curse. See, instantly to me, that's like a metaphor for sex. Huh. And like virginity, you know, like unmarried virgin women versus like the married woman, the snake. Snakes are very phallic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just because also like that's how temptation entered the garden was as a snake. I don't know. Fair. Although there was nothing to say that. Sex is a sin in Genesis. So, anyway. I'm pretty sure that it was encouraged. Yeah, yeah. Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. Like Get on with it. That. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. Okay, yes. If this be so, said the king, kill the male serpent and let the female live. For a man ought more willingly to die himself than permit the death of his wife. Or we could just let the snakes live, my guy. Yeah, I don't know why, why you need to kill either serpent. And he gave this reason for it. If my wife live, she may bring forth many sons who may succeed to my throne. I told you it was about sex. But if she should die, the kingdom would want an heir. I feel like that's actually backwards. Because his wife's children aren't going to succeed to the throne if they're not not also his his children. Yeah, no, you're right. Unless we're supposed to assume that he has some sperm frozen somewhere. Well, I kind of like the idea that it's it's her seed that, that matters here. He's just king by marriage. That's true. That would make sense. Yeah. Although it doesn't call her queen. It says a certain king had a wife. Rude, but okay. What was I talking about with the thing from the Republic? I don't know. Maybe just because her name was Cornelia? I'm going to put Cornelia into my Google search to see if that helps. Yes. Aha. This is a story about Tiberius Gracchus. Oh, the Grocky brothers! Of course. They helped establish the whole, like, plebeian vote, essentially. Future Mac again. When we were recording originally, I just googled it and read a version of the story off of a website. But, since I have the time now, I've pulled out my copy of Plutarch, which is where this story is from. 
or at least where it's known from. I don't know if he made it up. And I can just read you the actual text in translation. So the father of the Gracchi brothers, Tiberius Gracchus Sr., is the Tiberius in this little anecdote. The famous Tiberius Gracchus is his son. There is a story told that he once found in his bedchamber a couple of snakes, and that the soothsayers, being consulted concerning the prodigy, advised that he should neither kill them both nor let them both escape, adding that if the male serpent was killed, Tiberius should die, and if the female, Cornelia, his wife. And that, therefore, Tiberius, who extremely loved his wife, and thought, besides, that it was much more his part, who was an old man, to die than it was hers, who as yet was but a young woman, killed the male serpent and let the female escape, and soon after himself died, leaving behind him twelve children born to him by Cornelia. Obviously, in many ways, this is a much better executed version of the story. Anyway, this is at the beginning of the chapter on the Gracchi brothers from Plutarch's Lives, and according to the title page on my volume, this was translated by John Dryden and Others, which is interesting phrasing. But yeah, so you can look it up too if you want, and read the rest of the story if you're so inclined. See, that's really noble. That's really nice. We don't get that context here. Yeah, we need better context yeah, for this yeah. story. Because this is like, this is more, why are we killing the snakes? They're just in the garden. Yeah. Anyway, would you like to hear the application? Oh, oh, did we not finish it? That's who the did end, he yes. opt? Who did he opt to kill? The male snake. Ah, he, so he too, I see, okay. Well, except in this case, it's not specified that it's him. It's just a man it's will It's just die. a man. Whack. He does kind of imply at that last bit that, like, oh, maybe it'll be me, and I'm willing to roll the dice on that, but he's not given the specifics this time. Right. And he also doesn't need to kill one of the snakes in this version of the story. Right. I feel like that's pretty uh, pretty key for the, yes. the moral application, but uh, all right. So after gutting this story, what new moral do we have? My beloved, the king is Christ. The wife... Our human nature, for which he gave himself to death. That's that's it. I mean, clear application. Yeah, the moral of the story is Christ died for humans. For us, yeah. And you can tie the serpent motif in there, you know? Yeah. So all in all, 10 out of 10 would like to see that used in a medieval sermon. Better than a football metaphor. I mean, I would say if they could do this better. Yeah, but like for it's what very it, badly executed. For it what it is. I would rather have this story used in a sermon. If I'm a medieval peasant and I have to sit through a sermon on Sunday, I would rather have it be this story than Tale 83. Fair. Like, I'm working with what we get. Also, I want to point out, this is definitely a deed of the Romans. This is true. We are getting closer. We didn't get many of those. Okay, the next one's also pretty short, and then I think we'll be out of time. Does okay. that sound right to you? Yeah, works for me. So this is Tale 99 of Christ's manly contest and victory. Why'd they have to say it like that? I don't know. His manly contest and victory? I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, listeners, but I don't think anywhere in the Bible is Christ's, like, manliness really emphasized other than the fact that he's a male person. 
Like, even carrying the cross, it's not like, oh, he's so manly, he's carrying the cross. It's like, this guy is being tortured and needs someone to help him haul the cross to where he is going to die. I think it got pointed up in some of the retellings, because, like, early missionaries were trying to make him fit, like, the Germanic hero metaphor. Oh, that makes more sense. Okay. Metaphor? Archetype. Archetype, yeah. That makes sense. I'll buy that one a little bit more. Still, a little weird. Yeah. A little weird. Also, is it just me, or when you hear manly contest, like, the only thing I can associate that with is, like, people oiling themselves up and wrestling, right? Oh, yeah, no, like, it's a physical competition. Or, like, it's a dick measuring contest. Those are your two options. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, here's the story. In the reign of Caesar, definitely a Roman... Not an emperor, but, you know, it doesn't say deeds of the emperors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Actually, I guess it might be Augustus Caesar. Anyway. Yeah. In his reign, there lived a noble and valiant knight who once rode by a certain forest. Good story. And (laughs) And beheld a serpent engaging with a toad. I have seen videos of, like, serpents and toads fighting. Like, snakes and frogs. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. And it's really gnarly. Like, I would stop, too. (laughs) Point. (laughs) There's a footnote here. The stories, perhaps fabulous, of the serpent fighting with his inveterate enemy, the weasel, who eats rue before the attack begins, and of the serpent fighting with and being killed by the spider, originate from Pliny, Natural History, and there's a specific chapter and section number. Uh, Or rather, I think that's... Uh, book 10, chapter 84, and book 20, chapter 13. Ah, okay. I don't know why he's bringing this up, because there are no weasels or spiders, it's a toad. It's a toad and a snake. The latter, the toad, obtained the mastery. Ah! Which, when the knight saw, he assisted the serpent. R- rude? Yeah, why? Why, why are you getting you just, involved? Yeah, can't you just let it be? The heck? He assisted the serpent and, grievously wounding the toad, reduced it to seek safety in flight. I guess he broke up the fight, which I can kind of, like, I'm alright with that. But the conqueror... The toad? No, I think that's the knight. Oh. Because he was also affected by the toad's venom. Ooh, it's it's a venomous toad! Which, there are no actual (laughs) venomous toads. Yeah, to my knowledge, that is not a thing. But listeners, medieval Europe was convinced that toads were venomous. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is everywhere. You see it all the time. Because there's not... There's poison frogs, right? Yeah, but... And, like, they're toxic, but they're they're not venomous. Right, right. yeah. If, yeah. You only get sick if you bite them. Yeah. If they bite you, you're fine. They don't even have teeth. Yeah. But no, there was, there was a belief for some reason for a really long time that toads were extremely venomous. So the knight turned homeward and for a long time lay sick of his wound, which is why you don't get involved in a snake and toad fight. No. At last he made his will and prepared himself for death. Now, as he reclined near the fire, utterly hopeless of life, the serpent which he had preserved entered the apartment. Oh, he took it home. I don't think he did. Oh no, it just came home with him. Oh, I see. When the attendants beheld it, they said, My lord, my lord, a serpent has entered the room. 
When the knight saw it, he recollected that it was the same he had aided in its contest with the toad, and through which he was laid upon his bed incurable. Do not molest it, said the knight. That's a weird turn of phrase for us, but it was very common back in the day. Yes. I do not believe that it will harm me. The serpent glided towards him, and applying its tongue to the wound, sucked up the poison till its mouth was quite full, and then, hastening to the door, cast it out. It returned twice to the wound and did as before, until the venom was exhausted. The knight commanded milk to be given to the serpent. This is a folklore thing. This is a folklore thing, yes. In a lot of fairy tales, people give milk to snakes. I don't know why. Yeah. Maybe it's because they think they're fairies and, you know, you get you leave little cap thimblefuls of milk for fairies. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe it's because their venom looks like milk. That's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. Myth one, snakes drink milk. Just like any other animal, they drink water to keep them hydrated. If snakes are kept starred for days and offered milk, they will drink it. <laughs> no, don't do that. But yeah, but where did that, where did it come from? Oh, the common name for the milk snake originated from a belief that these snakes milked cows. Excuse me? Oh, because there are mice in the barn and the snakes go after the mice. But farmers were like, why why don't we have milk in our cows? The snakes took it. The snakes took it. That's wild. I did not know that. Come on, Smithsonian, where's your where's your citation? They didn't cite it. It's also like an Indian ritual. That's probably where it comes from. There's a, a lot of folklore um traveled west. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Anyway, there you go. Alright. There's your snake facts. Yeah, snake facts. So, okay, so he gave the snake milk after it sucked out the poison. Alright, so, uh, yeah, he gave the snake milk, which it instantly drank, and no sooner had it done so than the toad from which the wound <laughs> had been received. No! No, this is such a cute story! <laughs> and again attacked the serpent in revenge for it having healed the knight. I like how much sentience these animals have. The latter seeing this, the knight, I guess, said to his servants, Without doubt, my friends, this is the toad which I wounded in defense of that serpent, and from which I derive all my infirmity. If it conquer, it will attack me. Therefore, as ye love your master, kill it incontin- incontinently. <laughs> Forthwith, I think is a better word. Or you could have just shortened that whole thing to kill the toad. <laughs> and explains later. Couldn't do that. He's too dramatic. He's a knight. Kill it without bladder control. I guess. The servants, obedient to the knight's command, shit themselves. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, they slew it with swords and clubs. How big is this toad? How big is the snake? Fair. I mean, toads can get pretty big, so... Big enough to require multiple swords? I mean, I guess not, but... Anyway, they slew it with swords and clubs, while the serpent, as if to praise and thank its defender, twined around his feet and then departed. The knight completely recovered his health. Yay! Okay, it was a good story in the end. So, do you want to hear the application? It's a short one. It's yes. one sentence. Give it to me. My beloved, the emperor is God. Yep. 
Note that there was no emperor in this story. I was gonna ask. It was just the knight. <laughs> it just said in the reign of Caesar. That was all. Did we really have... Okay. I'm not, I'm not gonna push it. I'm not gonna question it. I'm gonna <laughs> nod my head. I'm gonna go along with it. The knight is Christ. The toad is the devil. And the serpent is man. But... But the whole point of the... What? The whole point of the resurrection is that, like, Christ did it on his own. No, no, we did it. We did it for him. We we, we sucked out his venom. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Never say those words in that context again. <laughs> no! There wasn't even subtext on that one. What? How does that even... I don't... This This one... This one is beyond me. No, see, Judas went back into the cave after the crucifixion and sucked all the venom out of the spear wound. Oh, okay, and that's that's how he and was resurrected. Got it. Yes. Got it. Obviously. Oh my gosh. And then fought the devil. And then fought the devil. Until like the angels, who I guess are the servants, came and slew. Yeah, they're slew the toad. We don't. We they're not part of this either. They're not listed though. No. Oh damn! All right. Like in broad strokes, I kind of get it. It's like, okay, man is fighting with the devil, yeah. and Jesus intervenes, and then Jesus almost Die. dies, yeah. but comes, comes back, back, and then helps kill the devil. If you don't look at it, it makes sense. But if if you actually like read the metaphor, it does not work. Yeah. So there is your occasional dose of the Gesta Romanorum. There we go. Wonderful. I did find... A little, a little site called, well, I don't know what it's called, but I, I think this is just a personal blog. And they have a, a small post called Folklore on Friday, and they talk about toads, and I thought that I would read that. All right, but we'll have to link to it in the show notes. We will. The humble toad has often suffered from a somewhat bad reputation. While many gardeners today welcome the presence of a toad, as they happily gobble up slugs and other pests, not that far back in history, toads were considered bad news. In the History of Antiquities of Lyme, Regis, and Charmouth, which is printed in 1834, G. Roberts tells us that, quote, Toads that gained access to a house were ejected with the greatest care. No injury was offered because they were regarded as being used as familiars by witches with veneration and awe. As recently as 1876, this belief persisted. English witch trials, there are court records that allege that witches possessed familiar spirits in the shape of toads that they sent out to cause ill. And evidently, the sight of a toad remained an ill omen, in folklore at least, long after the belief in witches and witchcraft dwindled away. And then there are some belief or like some exposition that toads have been associated with pestilence because they come like... The idea that toads are poisonous arises from their natural defenses. Most species of toad will secrete a substance that causes irritations to the skin. That's probably why, like, if you grab a toad, it probably will bite you. But it's not that the venom is in your body. It's that it's on your skin. Damp or foul-smelling places have toads and had poisoned airs, quote-unquote, in the medieval world. So that also makes sense. Now, the medieval worldview operated on a like-goes-to-like-accordingly philosophy. That is to say, things which were similar were somehow linked together. And so, like, since toads live in marshes, toads are venomous, I guess. They're toxic, whatever. And there's poisonous air in marshes, blah, blah, blah. That connects. 
in Thomas of Monmouth's Life of St. William of Norwich. It is said that in the reign of King Stephen, who ruled from 1135 to 1154, the prisoners in dungeons suffered, quote, enduringly miserable cold, hunger, stench, and attacks of toads. Attacks of toads? Attacks of toads. I don't think they're very aggressive. This is a medieval source. I, yeah, but I guess if you have, like, sores on your body, maybe it's due to the attacks of toads. In the second continuation of the Peterborough Chronicle, the entry for 1137, tells of the following dire fates for prisoners taken by King Stephen. Quote, They were hung by their thumbs or by the head, and corslets were hung on their feet. Knotted ropes were put round their heads and twisted until they penetrated into the brains. Ew. Then they put them in prisons where there were adders and snakes and toads and killed them like that. Is this England, 12th century? Is this the anarchy? Yes. Okay. Geraldus Cambrensis, better known as Gerald of Wales, was a clergyman of Welsh and Norman descent who wrote many chronicles and travelogues. He was also a keen naturalist. However, like many ancient scholars, Gerald was prone to mixing fact with folklore. And hence, in his 1191 tome, Journey Through Wales, we get the following... We're doing that at some point, by the way. Ooh, well, here we go. Here's, here's a, uh, an excerpt. So have a copy and it's good. Here is Cecil Eskehir which means Longshanks. This is about, about this guy, Cecil, which is not spelled the way you would expect it. It is spelled S-E-I-S-Y-L-L. You're right. That is not how I expected it. Cecil. Maybe he's from Utah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, here we go. In our own days, a young man who lived in this neighborhood and who was lying ill in bed was persecuted by a plague of toads. It seemed as if the entire local population of toads had made an agreement... They restricted his voting rights. They'd made an agreement to go visit him. Vast numbers were killed by his friends and those looking after him, but they grew again like the heads of the Hydra. Toads came flocking from all directions, more and more of them until no one could count them. In the end, the young man's friends and other people who were trying to help him were quite worn out. They chose a tree, cut off all its branches, and removed all of its leaves. Then they hoisted him up to the top in a bag. He was still not safe from his venomous assailants. The toads crawled up the tree looking for him. They killed him and ate him right up, leaving nothing but his skeleton. That's gotta be the most embarrassing death. <laughs> eaten by a swarm of toads. That's really bad. That's horrible. And it, it goes on. But there you go. There's, there's a little bit about toads in the Middle Ages and why they're so nasty. All right. Okay. Anyway, there you go. Toads. All right. Uh, after that toad diversion, <laughs> we, we may cut some of that down. We'll find out. Do you want to go on to our segments? Yes, indeed. Okay. Bestiary. Venomous toads, I feel like, count. Venomous toads Venomous absolutely toads. count. All right. What in all of this are we bringing to a D&D game? Venomous Toads, obviously, I think. Right. I'd like to point out that we've already come up with a snake that sucks poison out of you. So we've got that. That's on our list. Yep. That's good to go. I like the idea of snakes prophesying death. Like this was more like you kill one snake and it'll it'll kill you. But I, I like the idea of a snake prophesying death for someone in a town. Like, there are these two super holy snakes or whatever, and if one of them dies, if the male one dies, then a male person in town will die. There's so much you could do with that, you know? Yeah. And same for the female. I don't think you need to include the she's a wife 
part. Yeah, that's weird. You can just make it any lady in town. But that would be kind of cool. That's fun to have. How do you replace them after one dies? Well, I presume they have kids. Oh, okay. Or maybe they're like phoenixes. That would make sense. That'd be cool. Like it dies and then the snake sheds its skin and that come, that's how it comes back to life. Because see, my first thought was that someone could use it for randomized assassination. And if it keeps coming back, they can just keep trying till they hit the Oh right my person. gosh. You went a very different direction, but I respect it. <laughs> but yes, I do like the idea of snakes that prophesy. Prophesy. Thank you. Death. Other things. I have written down Abominable Whistler. Yes. Which should be the name of a monster. Okay, how would you turn it into a monster? Like, would it would it do sonic damage? Would it lure you out with its whistling, sort of like a will-o'-the-wisp, but for sound? I think it could do both. I think it would yeah. lure you out, and then once you're in range, it would use sound to attack you. I like that. That's good. Yeah, and I think it's, it should be some kind of, like, weird little creature. Okay, what about a weird little creature... No eyes, just like two little holes for a nose and a mouth. Yes. That's it. Yes. Like it's this weird good. little humanoidish looking creature. Yeah, kind of kind of a golem vibe. Yeah, yeah. But instead of having two big eyes, it doesn't use eyes. It just uses its sense of hearing and mm-hmm. whistle. Yeah. And that's the abominable whistler. That would be really spooky. Yeah, that's good. That's creepy. All right, all right. Maybe we'll write that one up. All right. The fish harp? Yeah, I had that written down too. Harp that summons fish. Obviously needs to be included. I feel like that could be a really great magic, like gag magical item, but it would probably also come in handy just because players can turn anything into something useful. Well, at the very least, like that's valuable in a non-adventuring context. Yeah. They could sell it to someone. Yeah, 100%. I don't think the golden fish hook needs to be anything in particular. No, no, that's... Because it's just a golden fish hook. That's just a weird thing. Why Why did he have that with him? I don't know. Doesn't make sense. He's ready to fish at any time. Yeah. I also have written down snakes that steal milk. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. I think that's an interesting vibe, and it's good to put in there. Or maybe snakes that just, like, steal your food in the middle of the night when you're adventuring, something like that. Snakes that steal stuff. Yeah. That would be great. Snakes that steal stuff. I really want to incorporate, like, the toad and the snake as a fight, but I don't know how you would do that. It would make a really good prophecy in a story, but I don't know how mm-hmm. you'd incorporate that into a game. Yeah, because I feel like most players are not going to do what the knight does and think, like, oh, I should intervene. Yeah. They'll just go, like, well, that's that's sure something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's weird. All right, cool. Oop. I also do, like, the idea of a venomous toad just in general. Mm-hmm. And toads, like, if they incubate an egg, that'll become a cockatrice. I feel like toads are the sort of thing that a no-good wizard would just want to have. Yeah. Like, you never know. You know, you might want to incubate. You might want to have a cockatrice. You might use their venom. They're kind of weird looking. They make cool croaky noises. It's just kind of a vibe for a wizard. I think it would be fun to have it be, like, a thing in, like, wizard, in the wizard subculture. Yeah. To just, like, as a hobby, try to breed more venomous toads. Yeah. Or just breed toads in general. You know, like people breed pigeons. Do they? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's why pigeons are everywhere. They used to be domesticated. They're, they're <gasps> not wild. They're feral. Oh, I hate that. Oh, I hate that even more than I originally hated pigeons. 
Like, because I knew about, like, the carrier pigeon. I just... Oh, I hate that. That's like squirrels. Squirrels were introduced into New York City to be, like, playmates in parks for young boys. Interesting. Yeah. And now they're everywhere. Oh, it was Philadelphia. Oh, but it's native to the eastern and midwestern United States. Yes, but there, it's not, like, meant to be in the city. Okay. Weird. Oh, there we go. All right. Pigeons. I did not know that about pigeons. Yeah. Hmm. All right. All right. Anything else? Toad breeding. I'm confused as to why why the idea that pigeons are feral instead of wild is so horrifying to you. Just because, like, it's our fault oh, yeah. that they're everywhere. I didn't realize that. Like, I didn't realize that it was like, oh, us, we put them back out instead of, like, being more responsible about it. But I don't know what I expected from humanity. That just wigged me out. I just didn't expect it. It's kind of weird that people, like, hate pigeons in cities so much. Because, like, I'm pretty sure we did that. Yeah. Like, we, we put them there. No, that makes sense. They were tame pigeons that we just let loose. Like... I don't like that, though. I don't like that we did that. That makes me feel... Like, whenever I see pigeons, I, I feel very sad for pigeons. Yeah. In general. They make me sad. They're sad little creatures, and I want better for them. And we have fundamentally let them down, apparently, in every single fucking way. Yes, true. Oh. That makes me so sad. Oh, well. Gosh. Anything else to add to a campaign? I think that's all I had. Okay. Onward, then. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Oh, what was the word? The fi- What were we doing to the fishes? Inveigling the Inveigling fishes. Inveigling the fishes, of course. That's I-N-V-E-I-G-L-E. Inveigle. Inveigle. Listeners, your task this week is to use that sentence in some message. It can be a tweet. It could be a tweet at us. It could be a work message. It could be over the dinner table. And by sentence, we mean word. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, use, <laughs> use that word in something this week. That's your challenge. I'm challenging you. <laughs> I just like the word abominable. That is a good one. It's fun to say. I like the phrase, reserved it for his own tooth. That is a good phrase, yes. And, uh, abscission is another word that stood out to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I think is, is cognate with scissors. It's yes, spelled it A-B-S-C-I-S-S-I-O-N. Yeah. And it just means, like, the cutting off or the detachment of something. It's a good word. Oh, it's, apparently it's from Latin skindere to cut, which I guess is probably where scissors comes from also. Sounds right. I think that's it. All right. Onward. Street smarts! Gosh. I feel like the lesson we can always take away from the guest of Romanorum is put a little effort into your metaphors. Yes. Please don't just copy them from a text. Please. I'm begging. However, the sloppiness of these metaphors mean we can also introduce the lesson, you can lie to Jesus. He'll believe you. I guess. Just make stuff up. Make it up. Or possibly Trajan, but in this story, Trajan is Jesus. Trajan is Jesus. I just, I hate, I hate it. I hate it so much. (laughs) All right. Zero out of ten. Don't get involved with wild animals. Just leave them alone. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to die, apparently. Yeah, you're going to die of toad. I I just really like, I'm tickled by the idea that this toad was like, screw you, you saved my, you saved the snake friend. 
I don't think it was just waiting around. It was like, I'm back for revenge. <laughs> Mike was watching out. the whole time. It's bizarre. It's very strange. But yes, if, if you bother wild animals, then you, like that Welshman in the story, will be eaten by a swarm of toads. 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 That's what happens. Doesn't matter what kind of animal you're bothering, the toads will come for you. I like it. I like it. Let's see, what else? Probably don't be obnoxious and whistle all the time. I mean, he did nothing actually happened to the abominable whistler. He just moved on because the harper got, got the hook and it was like, aha, now I can harp better than you can whistle and like he left. That's true. I don't know. Be a good neighbor, though. I, I still feel like. Yeah. Is a good takeaway. Also, fish like whistling. Apparently, who knew? Also, according to the metaphor in that story, your local priest is trying to coax you out of the world so he can eat you. I, I am perplexed every single time we go through these. Every single time. Okay. Also, the prelates will cut off your ears and kill your family. <laughs> Always carry your trusty fishing hook. Boar hearts are delicious. Yeah, there we go. I mean, I can't actually be sure of that. Maybe Trajan has weird tastes. I feel like he's an emperor. I feel like all emperors have weird tastes. Yeah. Wasn't there a thing, like, I, I swear I remember hearing about Roman emperors eating lark tongues. And I was like, is there, like, surely those can't be any good. Like, the point Why? has to just be that, it that, that like, it's a pain to collect them. At that point, yeah. Like, it's just that, like, look how rich I am. I can have a whole plate of these. I feel like, yeah, at that point, that's the only, like, that's the only thing you're achieving there. Yeah. Lark tongue? For me, my best moment is that we got the happy ending with the toad and the snake. That's my best moment. I'm happy with that ending. Usually all of these stories are horribly tragic. That's it for me. That's my best moment. I think the one I enjoyed most is from the same story, but I liked the return of the toad. <laughs> like we already toad. talked about that. The revenge. That is just so ridiculous. And I think it makes it the best moment. The whole thing is just so bizarre. And that's what's so, I guess, whimsical about it. I feel like you have to describe this story as whimsical. Yeah. There's nothing else it could be. It's just strange and bizarre and funny. Yeah. Facts. The court. Does it have to be a person? I think our only rule is that it has to be mortal. Mortal. Okay. Do I want the snake? I kind of like the snake. The knight is kind of useless. He's not super helpful. And then who else have we got? We've got the whistler. We've got the harper. We've got Trajan. We've got... What was the middle story? It's the story of, with Trajan and the boar. The boar, yeah. Tiberius and the harp. The story about the snake prophecy. And then the toad and serpent. I want the gardener. I want Jonathan. I kind of expected that. Ah. <laughs> Did I ruin it for you? No, I had other, I, I have other ideas. Other options. He's just, he's reliable, you know. He's a good guy, this Jonathan. If we just put Jonathan, that would go over horribly. Like, who's yeah, that guy? Like, Who? See, I'm, I would be tempted to take Trajan because he actually was fairly impressive. Yeah. But he's kind of lame in this story. Yeah. And I don't want this version of him. Exactly. You always have to think, like, there could be another version of Trajan out there that's better. Yeah. And the medievals loved Trajan. They yes. thought they, he was like the example of the virtuous pagan. The coolest. So, there's probably better depictions of him elsewhere in the literature. Mm -hmm. You've got some good options here. I know. I am. I'm torn. I'm torn. I have. I've, I've got a couple options that I'm considering. Okay. 
I'm taking the toad. Oh, you want the toad. You want that Okay. You'd rather have a venomous toad? I think he's justified in taking his revenge. Why did this knight get involved? The toad was fighting a serpent. And let's be real, the serpent probably started that. Toads aren't known for that. And he was winning. And then a knight comes in and stabs him for no reason. And That's so he's fair. Like, that is kind of a knight. move. Yeah, that is a move. And you have to admire the dedication of watching the knight to make sure he dies. That's true. He is a thorough assassin. Also, it might be a giant toad. We don't. That's true. It's not clear. It is not clear. I don't know. I like. I like the snake who whose venom, you, like you know, can suck out. Yeah. Any venom. I mean, yeah, yeah. I like the toad. Fair enough. The other one I was debating was the abominable whistler. He's also cool. What a guy. And like, what a way to be known. I know, right? It's like Envin the plagiarist, my favorite guy in all of the sagas. <laughs> Like, you poor b- Final rating. We have to rate these, and we, we usually rate them separately. We do. So, the story of the boar. The boar. Six. I'm giving this one a six. It's funny, but it's so bizarre. Like, the logic here just pisses me off. Yeah, I'm in a similar place. I'm going to give it a five for, for the same reasons. Yeah. All right, you can lower mine to a five. I'll match you. All right. It's not that good. What was the second one? What was the second one? The second the one is the Harper. The Harper and yeah, the Whistler. the Harper and the Whistler. This one I liked more. There's still no, like, moral behind it. There was no, like, conflict here, so I'm giving it a six. I am also giving it a six. I don't think it's well-structured, but actually I'm giving it a six and a half because it's not well-structured, but it made me laugh and I think it deserves points for that. It is funny. Yes. All right. The snake prophecy. This one. Oh, the snake prophecy. I forgot about this one. Oh, I could have picked the prophetic snakes. Hmm. I like the original story better, but I like the idea of prophetic snakes. Also giving this one a six. I think it's fine. I would give it a five, but... I'm knocking it down to a four because, like you said, the original version is better, so it gets a one-point penalty for screwing it up. Yep. And finally, the tale with the serpent and the toad. I like the story. It's whimsical. It's got, like, that early fairy tale vibe. Mm-hmm. I like that the snake wins. I also like the toad. The knight is a dumbass. He's really funny. He didn't have to get involved, but he did. And I think there's, like, a moral to be learned here about interfering. I like how anthropomorphic the snake and the the toad are. 7.5. I'm going to give it just a normal 7, but I agree with you on all of these points. I think it's fun and whimsical. And it's funny that both of them come back. Yes. I can't quite give it an 8, but it's close. It's close. Yeah. All right. I just want to note that... uh, I have been tracking, like, the total average that the Gestaromanorum gets. Oh, no. And we're barely keeping it above average. Like, it's a five and a half. Oof. See, this is why we don't do it too often. There's so many stories that we're just like, no. No. No, that's not it. Terrible. (laughs) All right. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. Shall we do some Hildegard? Yes, let's. We can continue going through our stones. Yes. Tell me more about stones. Okay, here we go. So we're now moving on to sard, which is also a medieval term used in place of f- So there you go. Well, I guess is the it? F word. Yeah, I was going to say, gonna bleep that so it's going to be less clear after yeah. I bleep you. Yeah, so the F word. 
But it's also just it's just a rock with like we it's that's a that's a term that's still in in circulation. Yep. I did not know that it was a oh so it is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I really like it. It's one of my favorites. I use it in my fantasy work actually. Oh. Just for fun, just for some flair. All right. Sar develops after midday from an inundation of showers when the leaves of deciduous trees fall in autumn, which is leaves that shed annually. Yeah, as opposed to evergreen. So after rain in the autumn is when sard develops. Which, to remind the listeners, this is because in Hildegard's world, rocks aren't rocks. They like, they, they, they grow. kind of grow. Yeah, they're formed. Yeah. They're like mushrooms. They are. They are like mushrooms. I kind of like that stone lore. All right. The sun is very hot, the air is cold, and the sun's redness warms the, the sun. sun is very hot. <laughs> the sun's redness warms the sard. Therefore, it is purely from air and water, and it is well balanced in a good moderation of heat. It averts adverse pestilences with its power. Good. That's the nature of sard. Now, uses for sard. If a person ails in his head from many diseases and illnesses, now this could also be mental illness, and she also adds here, so that he is almost out of his mind of it, he should tie, oh boy, he should tie sard on top of his head, either in a hat, some cloth, or a leather sack. Very stylish. Yes. He should say, just as God threw the first angel into the abyss, so may he cut this illness from you, enter name here, and restore good knowledge. He will be cured. So this sounds like a mental illness sort of thing, as opposed to like a physical ailment. And so you put you put a rock on his head. Yes. Preferably in a hat, so it looks less less, less ridiculous. weird. And then you say the little thing and it will it will heal him. Yes. One whose hearing has been hardened through some illness should dip the sard in pure wine, as opposed to like watered wine or herbal wine or whatever. When it has been thus dampened, he should put it on a thin linen cloth and fasten it over the deaf ear with a very thin string or piece of material over the cloth. The heat of the sard will enter the ear. If he does this often, he will recover his hearing. All right, I'm liking the theme of tie it to yourself much better than the theme then of... eat it? <laughs> suck on it. Suck on it, yeah. Ring pop. <laughs> One who has jaundice should do a similar thing, using urine and sard at night. He should say the words as described above. After doing this for three nights, he will be cured. That sounds unpleasant. Yeah, I, it doesn't say whether you tie it to your head or to your ear or something, but presumably mm -hmm. you do that with the sard and the urine and yeah. you say the invocation and you'll be all right. I mean, if, if it says you do the same thing, then I would change as little as possible from the previous instructions. Yeah. If a pregnant woman is oppressed by pain but unable to give birth, that is to say, in labor and it's not working, rub sard around both of her thighs, probably a little closer than that, and say, just as you, stone, by the order of God, shone on the first angel, so you, child, come forth a shining person who dwells with God. Immediately hold a stone at the exit for the child, that is, at the female member, and say, open, you roads and door, in that epiphany by which Christ appeared, both human and God, had opened the gates of hell. Just so, child, may you also come out from this door without dying, without the death of your mother. Then tie the same stone in a belt and cinch it around her, and she will be cured. I like this. I like that it's in there, that they're, like, thinking about, like, Pregnancy. these problems. Yeah. Because, like, often, 
women are kind of left out of these medical texts. So it's always good to see that. To see, like, we are doing a thing that has to do with pregnancy. Like, mm-hmm. that's a serious issue. Mm-hmm. But I extra like the idea that you could have your gynecologist holding up a stone and yelling like they're an exorcist <laughs> to get the child out. It's, it's quite the vision, you know? And yeah. and really, I think this is what we're missing in, in medieval media, you know? Representations of, of the medieval world are really missing the exorcisms of... Of the child from the mother. It's it's quite the vision. Yeah. But it would be very serious, and I feel like this would be both an intense moment, but also hopefully like a very sobering and prayerful moment, you know, given the context of what's going on, you know, because mm-hmm. they know childbirth is very dangerous. Right. Yes. All right. So we are moving on to Topaz, because that one was short. Topaz develops just before the ninth hour of the day in the heat of the sun. The sun from the day's heat and the variations of the air is then its purest. Topaz is hot and has a bit of air and water in it. It is clear and that clarity is similar to water. Its color is more like gold than yellow. It resists heat and poison and does not tolerate them just as the sea is unable to bear any depravities in it. Sorry, the sea? That's what it says. I have no idea what that means. I feel like the Navy would have a lot to say about what kind of depravities the sea can bear. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, apparently the sea is unable to bear depravities in it. Mm Mm-hmm. No idea. I I don't even know how to read that. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, I'm really not sure what that means. All right. If poison is present in bread, meat, fish, or any food, or in water, wine, or other drink... Man, why even give examples? I don't know, man. And if there is topaz nearby, it will immediately sweat, just as the sea foams when there is filth in it. So I feel like you put this on your goblet, like you put like a topaz on your goblet. Man, you're going to get so many false alarms from condensation. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Therefore, when a person eats and drinks, he should hold his finger with a topaz on it next to the food and drink. He should frequently look at it. If there is anything poisonous in the food or drink, it will immediately sweat. On to the next one. All right, yeah. One whose vision is obscured should put topaz in pure wine for three days and nights. Then, at the night when he goes to bed, he should rub his eyes with that topaz so moistened, that is to say, like, with the wine. Mm -hmm. The liquid should touch the inside of his eyes a little bit. When the stone has been removed from the wine, it is possible to keep that wine for five days. Then, as often as he wishes to streak his eyes at night, he should dip the same stone in that wine and rub it so moistened around his eyes. He should do this often, always renewing the wine with the topaz after five days. Just as the best eye salve, it will clarify the eyes. This is just what women do with the little rolly things. Oh, is that what those are yeah. for? Yeah, they take like their moisturizer or whatever and roll their faces or like with the gua sha. You're talking the stone roller. Yeah, things. yeah. I may have mentioned before, listeners, over the summer, I work at a bookstore that also sells, like, rock and crystal stuff, and one of the things we sell are those stone rollers, and I've always kind of wondered what they're for. Yes. I thought they were for, like, witchy stuff, like spells and because a lot of stuff we sell is for that. Didn't realize they were for applying moisturizer. Yeah, or whatever else. So this is, it's the same thing, but for your eyes. And you should have it be topaz. You should find a topaz. Most of ours are jade. I wonder what the properties of that are. Well, maybe we'll get to it. All right. If a person has fevers, he should make with topaz three moderately sized trenches in soft bread and pour pure wine in them. 
If the wine disappears, he should pour in more wine. This is just going to end in you making bread and wine soup. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem great. Yeah, if the wine disappears, blah, blah, blah. He should look at his face in the wine which he poured into the trenches as if he's looking at a mirror. He should say, I look at myself just as the cherubim and seraphim look at God in a mirror so that these fevers might be cast from me. He should do this often and he will be cured. That's a weird little ritual. That's a weird one. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. Yeah, that's also a lot of wine to like have a yeah, reflection. Yeah, it's going to keep soaking into yeah, the bread. Yeah, it's just going to be mushy. You don't even eat it. That's all you do. Hmm. Hmm. All right. One who is leprous should eat should heat a tile well. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I was really expecting you to say should eat topaz. Eat it. Eat the whole thing. No. One who is leprous should heat a tile well and place oat chaff on it so that it smokes. He should hold the topaz over the smoke so that it sweats and then smear the sweat over the lecherous place. When he has done this, he should take olive oil and mix it with a third part of the juice of violets. So whatever olive oil you have, violet juice should be like one third of that amount. Mm Mm-hmm. He should rub it on the place which has been moistened with the topaz sweat. If he does this often, the lesions will be broken and the person will be better unless he dies. Thank you, Hildegard. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. He'll either get better or he won't. Or he won't. Are violets like a, a cure for leprosy? All right. One who ails in his spleen or who has rotten matter inside himself. This is like too many bad humors and you're rotting yeah. inside probably diagnosed by like oh you're coughing up all kinds of crap yeah probably rotten should place topaz in straight moroc which is wine apparently presumably a specific type yeah for five days then he should remove the topaz and boil the wine so that it steams hold the topaz over the steam so that it sweats and the sweat mixes with the wine blah 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 and then he should place the stone in the warm wine so like soak this thing and then take it out and prepare without lard a broth or beverage from that wine. He should do this often and sip it. His spleen will be healed and his interior rot will diminish. Also, every day in the morning, place topaz over your heart and say, May God, who is magnified above all things and in all ways, not reject me from his honor, but may he preserve, strengthen, and establish me with his blessing. Is that separate? I think it is separate because then it says, As long as you do this, evil will abhor you. The very strong topaz stone has in it this virtue from God. Because it grows while the sun is sinking, it deflects assaults from a person. Deflects what? Assaults. Attacks. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. All right. Why do you have to make a beverage from the wine? Wine is already a beverage. Well, it's been, you've got like all the topaz sweat in it now. Yeah, it says like, after you do this, make a beverage from the wine. Why can't you just drink it like it is? I don't freaking know. I have no idea. There. No idea. So th- those are your tips and tricks for topaz. Yeah. Luckily, you don't have to suck on it this time. Just gotta no. stick it on your head. Yeah. Try that you for your... You do pee on it for one of these. But yeah, but that's for... It stays external. Yeah. That's for fevers. So I guess, you know, maybe try wearing a little bit of topaz on your head. Get like a headband or something. Maybe earrings. Topaz earrings. Let us topaz know. Topaz is very pretty. So like... Yeah. That, that covers it for today. Yeah. Go out with this newfound knowledge. Yes. Do what you will with the things you have learned today. Yeah. Wear topaz. Eat pig hearts. And and lure some fishes. 
Trick God. <laughs> oh boy. Alright. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Why is it in light mode now? Atonement. It's repented its sins and turned back to the light. Did I turn the light mode on? No, dark mode is on. Rude.